wish you all a, a good afternoon and welcome uh, to the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. I'm Dick Morningstar, the founding director of the center. Also, I'm also glad to see here David Goldwyn, who's uh, the chairman uh, of our advisory group and the person who uh, brought us our moderator today, uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Quarterman. Uh, so we're pleased, uh, we're very pleased to see you all here, uh, all here today. And today's discussion <clears throat> will focus on how energy prices, politics, geology, and environmental concerns have affected and will continue to affect fracking uh, in the United States and the potential for fracking to succeed in, in other places like Europe, uh, Mexico, Argentina, China, uh, and other places. We do have an outstanding uh, panel of experts today uh, to discuss these important issues. Uh, the discussion uh, will be moderated by one of our own very distinguished senior fellows who, uh, again, who David brought us, um, Cynthia Quarterman. Um, Cynthia most recently served, and I always, this is always a tongue twister for me for some reason, most recently served as the administrator of the U.S. Department of Transportation's Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. And Cynthia has been a key uh, policymaker in energy development, safety, uh, and transportation uh, since the beginning of the Clinton administration. And we're pleased to have her knowledge and expertise here at the, uh, at the Atlantic Council. Um, and today's expert panelists, you have, if you picked up, uh, I think the biographies were available outside, right? Yeah. So you have the biographies, so I'll just briefly introduce our panelists. <clears throat> who include uh, Subhash Chandra, uh, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Guggenheim Partners. Uh, Mr. Chandra had the foresight to recognize fracking's huge potential early on and at one point advised over 90% of the companies involved in the industry. I guess I could ask how many companies were involved in the industry at that time, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> All two of them, or, or one in one in seven eighths out of two of them, uh, and uh, and Dr. Uh, Dr. Terry Engelder, who's a professor of geosciences at Penn State, and a geologist who originally estimated the potential gas reserves in Pennsylvania, um, uh, which first set off the shale boom, and he's also taught at Texas A&M and has a whole host of. Uh, Whole, <clears throat> of, whole host of credentials that you can see in his biography. And finally, we have uh, Russell Gold, uh, who is a senior energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal who's been reporting on fracking since day one. And Mr. Gold recently published a book uh, specifically on this topic, and it's titled The Boom, how fracking ignited the American energy revolution and changed the world. And uh, for the audience and those watching the live webcast, you may also contribute to the conversation on Twitter uh, by utilizing the hashtag uh, ACEnergy. And so let me, uh, I hope we'll all extend a warm welcome to Cynthia and to our panelists. And uh, Cynthia will say a few words and then we will uh, uh, begin the panel discussion. Thank you.
will just say thank you for being here this afternoon. I think this will be an interesting panel. We just came from lunch where we had lots of interesting conversation about what's happening with respect to fracking in the United States. And these gentlemen also have an international perspective, and we're going to push them to answer some of that. And I'm going to start right out with uh, Dr. Englander, who is known, at least in Pennsylvania, as the father of fracking because of his work uh, figuring out how much gas there was in the Marcellus Shale. Uh, Dr. Englander is also, uh, in 2011, I think, was noted as one of the top 100 thinkers in the foreign policy magazine on this issue. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about how you got into this, Terry? Well, thank you, Cynthia. Uh, first of all, let me indicate that I am always embarrassed with this title, Father of Fracking in Pennsylvania, and uh, have a written statement that I'd like to uh, um, put forth as a disclaimer. But before that, whenever making an appearance, I always pass around a notebook in which I have the audience enter their name, their alma mater, and then their company or affiliation. I'm just going to hand this down right here to this gentleman. So go ahead and pass this around the room during this, this period of time, if you would. All right, th this is the, uh, the disclaimer. And I'll read it, although I, I dislike um, red text. But in this case, this is so important that I'll, I'll, I'll disclaim it by reading it anyway. All right, it is flattering to have people think that I might be the father of fracking, but it is a title that I don't deserve. Uh, in re reality, I am a very small gear in a very large motor, the motor that supplies energy to the human economy. My research on shale gas over nearly 40 years culminated in reserves calculations for the world's largest unconventional field, the Appalachian Basin, in 2008. This research garnered international attention following a December 2007 press release from Range Resources, the company responsible for pioneering and discovering wells in the Marcellus. Now, at one point within the last year, I asked Range Resources head of public affairs to actually write a statement concerning what it was that I actually did. And his statement was, my work added a level of independent credibility that was lacking or understated at the time. Now, bear in mind that this is late 2007, before the, the boom that Russell Gold is going to talk about. For perspective, industry suggests that the volume of technically recoverable gas distributed through several layers in the Appalachian Basin, including the Marcellus and the Utica, is comparable in size to the Northfield, which is the world's largest conventional gas field. To me, Uncle Sam is the father of fracking. Under the leadership of President Jimmy Carter, the Department of Energy initiated the Eastern Gas Shields Project, known as EG, ES, Eastern Gas Shields Project, EGSP. EGSP provided funds to any of a number of scientists in government, in industry, and academia for the explicit purpose of discovering how to tap the vast reserves of North American gas shale. Now, bear in mind, Carter was president in the 1970s, so this has been going on for a long time. So I would suggest, Cynthia, to you and others, a government scientist who might be called the father of fracking, 
uh, is Al Yost of the National Energy Technology Laboratory. And he was responsible for drilling some of the first horizontal wells in fractured gas shale in the Appalachian Basin, again using government funding. Now, there are several industry folks who might also deserve this title, the father of fracking. These would include Ken Nolte of Amico, who designed the early massive hydraulic fracture experiments in Colorado in the 1970s. Then, of course, there's George Mitchell, whose company, Mitchell Energy, was the first to make a fracking of gas shales commercial, and this was done in the 1990s. And then Bill Zagorski of Range Resources, who was the first to put a massive hydraulic fracture on the Marcellus. All of these people are deserving. Academic types include geophysicist Mark Zoback of Stanford and engineer Steve Holditch of Texas A&M. While it is not fair to include me in the list of potential candidates for that title, you did ask me to explain myself. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so um, I was blessed with funds from Uncle Sam to do some of the early pioneering work on natural hydraulic fractures and gas shales back in the 1970s. This was the same time that George Mitchell was experimenting with gas shale in Ohio, again using government funds from uh, the Eastern Gas Shales Project. Then later, uh, EGSP funding uh, went to me to try to understand the state of stress in gas shales in the Appalachian Basin. And that was a, just a great experiment in the 1980s. I was a small part of Shell's venture uh, in the Antrim gas shales, which was one of the first attempts at producing gas from a standard gas shale as we know it today. At Penn State, I had an amazing group of graduate students, and this is very important, if the, the, not the faculty member, but the students that are associated with the faculty member. All of these students contributed significantly to our present understanding of gas and oil, shale. We came to understand which natural fractures were driven by high-pressure gas. We came to understand the rate of fracture growth, the timing of fracture growth, and the distribution of fracture growth, all of these are important elements that make commercial gas production possible. And finally, and most importantly, none of these are the discoveries of one person. Well, thank you, I stand corrected on that. Uh, did I understand there's also a woman involved, a, a geologist as well, in the history back in the olden days? Who well, uh, as a matter of fact, um, there were two or three that I'd like to name. Um, interestingly enough, when the New York State survey, before it was called a survey, decided to understand the uh, uh, mineral industries of New York State, this would have been in 1843, a man named James Hull was the geologist responsible for that. And he just had gotten married. And uh, I, I suppose his wife was looking for a honeymoon to go over to Europe, but rather he said, you're coming with me to map in western New York. Now, she was a good artist, and on, on her honeymoon, she drew pictures of these fractures and gas shales that still remain seminal. That was later mapped by a Cornell graduate student named Pearl Sheldon in, in 1912, and that still remains some of the seminal work um, in understanding fractures and gas shales. Of course, it's fractures and gas shales that allow you guys to do whatever you do. <laughs> Thanks. 
Uh, Mr. Chandra, I understand that you met Dr. Englander early on after his calculation. How did you get involved in, in fracking? Yeah, so I guess uh, my background is we're just trying to find securities where um, uh, in, in growth industries. And mm -hmm. um, as we were talking at lunch, we coincided when the Gulf, the shelf was dying. Mm -hmm. And so my, that's when I got in the industry was when the Gulf of Mexico shelf was where the hot IPOs came from. So that ended. Um, and uh, one of the first companies I found thereafter was, uh, was Mitchell Energy, uh, as referenced by Terry. Um, so, uh, so I was immediately impressed that um, we kind of got tired of the gambler's ruin in, in, in the shelf. And uh, we saw some companies do very well, get bought out, and some companies just absolutely disappear. So when, when I saw uh, uh, Mitchell Energy, um, here was an onshore company growing sustainably every year on vertical fracks at that time. It hadn't even gone horizontally. So I was very excited by that. And, um, uh, but it was also a curse in, in, in another way because after, uh, after seeing uh, George and his company at a very, I guess, right before the takeout, but a very early stage of high, the uh, uh, horizontal application of fracking, they had sort of implied to me this would not work outside of their acreage. Now, I was too young to realize that every company says that, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I went for quite some time going, wow, okay, um, guys, no, this stuff out here outside of Wise and Denton County, it's just not going to work. Um, and that cost me a couple of very, very good um, uh, uh, companies and uh, ideas along the way. Um, but I came around finally. In 2005, as we were talking, the Fayetteville. Now, what was interesting about the Barnett to the Fayetteville shale was that the Barnett was supposed to have unique characteristics that could not be replicated. Uh, and as it so happened in the Fayetteville, they drilled two wells, stock went up, and those could not be replicated. But what was very exciting, what got me in touch with Terry, was that Appalachia as a landmass was, was multitudes bigger than the, than the Fayetteville or the Barnett. And, um, and today, you know, for very different reasons, um, it has a very unique place in the U.S. as an as a exporter of, of gas, as an exporter of products, as a net exporter. And I think it's a, it, for, from a stock picking perspective, it's a very exciting place to be. So anyway, so I went to the father of fracking. <laughs> uh, you know, we need uh, a new title. Science disclaimer, right? <laughs> My bad. Um, and I, you know, to understand this basin, um, at the time, I believe it was Chesapeake Energy that bought a, uh, bought a company uh, and had a big position there, but it was tectonically different. Everything about it was different uh, than, than the other place. So uh, that's how I found Terry, and, and Terry introduced me to a lot of words I still can't pronounce and concepts I didn't understand. But, um, it's been a, but what was amazing about this whole shale experience is that there was no book you could read. And, uh, and the education, even now, is very much real time. And you know, along the way, clients would ask, why don't you write a primer? The so primer is so historical. Um, I, there's so little I know. Every passing day, there's so little mm -hmm. I know. Yet I feel like I've known a lot since we had, we had our chat. And so anyway, that's how I met Terry. And Terry really helped us. Um, and, um, you know, and Terry, I think, phrased uh, the Pennsylvania experience very well. And since then, it's been Pennsylvania. It's also been Ohio. Increasingly, it's going to be West Virginia. And the rock is getting more powerful. The rock is getting far more uh, productive. And the, the techniques that they're using to exploit the rock are just absolutely violent, where you have wells that are capable of doing these astronomic rates that in the Gulf of Mexico were, were things that couldn't happen are now being experienced in a single well, uh, uh, per well in, uh, in places like Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. You said the primer hadn't been written? <laughs> Great introduction for Mr. Gold and his book, The Boom. Um, I understand uh, 
that this may be a little bit personal for you as well. Sure. Um, and I, I have to say, personally for me, it's great to be on the end of asking you questions <laughs> rather than answering them. Right. So Russell, why don't you tell us how you got into well, this? Well, I, I will definitely get into the personal uh, in a minute, but I'm, uh, my story is, is a classic example of how it's better to be lucky than smart. Uh, because when I was starting off at the Wall Street Journal, I was looking around for a beat and uh, I joined the energy team, not for any particular good reason other than the fact that I was in Texas and I wanted to stay there. And so they assigned me to the smallest companies, mostly doing US domestic oil exploration. And these were companies, frankly, that very few people, Subash, maybe you're an um, exception, but very few investors were really interested in because everyone knew there wasn't much oil and gas left in the United States. We had depleted the rock and we were importing. And so there wasn't that much money to be made. So let's give it to the new guy. So the, you know, I, as the new guy I go off and I start meeting with companies and one of the companies wants to talk to me about this new drilling they're doing in and around Fort Worth in the Barnett Shale. Uh, and so you know, I went to my first frack job in 2003. We didn't even call it fr a frack job back then. We didn't even have the technology. People would talk about it as unconventional gas. Uh, so really, I got in on it very early on, just listening to companies talk about how they had found this new way to drill lots of wells and get lots of gas. And for several years, 03, 04, 05, 06, um, that's what I did. I sort of covered and wrote about the companies and wrote about what I saw as something very significant in the United States. Um, and then one day, read about, I guess, 07 or 08, I got a call uh, from my parents, from my mother specifically. And they, they're Philadelphians, but they own 100 acres up in north central Pennsylvania, a place to get away on the weekend. And she said to me, so we just got this strange call from a company called Chesapeake. They want to inquire about leasing our land, and which was caught me by surprise. I should have known about this, but you know, at the time, there was a little drilling going on in the Pittsburgh area, but this was hundreds of miles away, clearly clear across Pennsylvania. And so really, I had to go back and start learning about why Chesapeake was leasing um, all the way uh, so far across Pennsylvania, and I did. And that really got me onto the second stage of learning about fracking and what was going on. And it really brought me into these questions of, should we be doing this? Because that's really the question my mother asked me. Should we sign a lease? Should we allow this company to come draw on this property we own? Um, and how can you? get the benefits of all this oil and gas in the country, in the United States, um, and minimize the risk and the inconvenience and the downsides uh, to it. And those are very important questions. And I, and I will posit that I don't think those questions have been answered in the United States yet. I think we're still grappling with them. Um, I'm based in Texas, and Texas is about to pass a law which is looking at that very issue. Who actually should be regulating it, the state or, or the cities? We're still negotiating these questions. And I think that's important because one of the questions um, I know we're going to get to is uh, why hasn't shale taken off outside of the United States? It's been transformative in the United States and Canada, but outside the United States, it's really barely has started. And I think one of the answers is because as much as the United States has struggled with these questions, um, we had one thing going for us. We had incentive. Americans in the United States, we own our own mineral rights. Um, and so when Chesapeake wants to come and drill on 100 acres of land, they're going to make an offer. Uh, and they're going to make an offer that's sweet enough, hopefully, to overcome the inconvenience of having trucks driving all across your property for the next few months. 
outside the United States, that's not the case. And as much as we're struggling in the United States with how to balance these questions, uh, I think outside the United States it's even more difficult because that incentive question hasn't been fully addressed. Uh, because by and large, it's the government or the states that own the mineral rights. So when you want to go into a community and say, we want to drill wells here, um, you're not also bringing large checks as they do in the United States. So these are, these are topics, that, as I wrote in, in my book, The Boom, I wrote all about this. I wrote about Al Yost. Um, I wrote about Terry. I, I wrote about all of the different people who, who created this technology and also the questions we're all still struggling with today. Uh, I see it as one of the most important questions uh, that we're addressing in the United States, clearly uh, in energy. And all these questions which, which we talk about and are talked about in Washington, exports, should we allow uh, gas exports, should we allow oil exports, Keystone XL, they're all basically questions that have been set in motion by uh, fracking and this enormous new product, production of oil and gas uh, that, that comes from essentially an oil field technique that's been around for several decades. Uh, and then one day in the late 90s, someone modified it slightly and completely changed uh, this country's energy landscape. Mm -hmm. Well, Subhash, let me put it to you directly. The title of the panel is, Can Fracking Survive? Uh, I think the end of last week, we saw the price of oil at about $59.5, the price of gas two, a little over $2.5 per MMBTU. Um, if you look back to July, prices were a lot different last year. They've been even lower recently. Um, under those circumstances, we've already seen rig counts going down. We've seen uh, notices of job losses. Can fracking survive? And if so, what kinds of companies would be the ones to, to salvage themselves at the end? Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll probably answer the, the last part first. The best rock is going to survive here. <laughs> Right. Uh, um, uh, I personally think that um, an enormous change is happening right now as we speak. I think the productivity of shale oil, because that's what the global markets is, was hugely underestimated. Um, uh, three years ago, I remember clients asking the same thing that happened to gas, which had fallen precipitously from a, from a 6 to $10 range to what has never topped really for sustainably. Is that about to happen in the world of oil? And uh, we really had no way to tell. We, know, we understand that the oil molecule um, is a lot bigger. <laughs> Terry can quantify it exactly. It was a lot bigger than the gas molecule. It's a, it's a different beast, and it's far more problematic. Well, the world now understands that the U.S. can grow and is sized to grow at a rate of a million to a million and a half barrels per day plus. Um, it can grow in excess of that. And they have made room for that barrel. The irony of this is that, you know, if we were to express it this way, is that, okay, so the U.S. oil, every last barrel has cleared profitably, no matter what the cost was, um, uh, and was sold at 90, 100. Each barrel, marginal barrel, made a profit. Uh, which is fantastic, right? And if you just uh, you know, uh, told someone, uh, a layman, so to speak, uh, say, wow, demand just must have been great. And you look at the numbers, demand wasn't good at all, right? So what happened was that the global forces allowed US oil to, to have a place uh, in the world at a rate of growth that they then decided, ultimately looking at what was going on, saying, wow, we're down at 32% market share. They can keep growing at this rate. This is not just a little, you know, a little bubble that pops. So what have they decided last November? We won't allow it, right? We are going to defend our market share. I think Russell's paper had a, had a, had a good article on it today, previewing the OPEC report. 
Um, so that is a sea change, because what we have now is an industry that initially was gas, a gas did deflate, but they immediately transferred those dollars into oil, thinking that they can grow forever. So when you have a business where every, every item you sell marginally is profitable, what do you do? Well, you lever that business up. You hire lots of people, you lever it up, leverage is great, you would feed leverage into that business. So what we now have built in a new environment where that barrel, where million, million and a half barrels will not be allowed, so to speak, is too much excess capacity. That excess capacity exists in terms of, um, in terms of land. A lot of land will basically be returned back to the leaseholder, not to be drilled again. You got way too much in, in capital. You don't lever a business where uh, that is, uh, um, where your revenues are as uh, um, you know as uh, in flex as ours are, um, where the risks are what they are. So leverage is going to come out of the business, talent, and services. So the services side, you're already seeing. You're already seeing the Halliburtons, the Schlumbergers, and all these people. Um, what they don't really want to do is this hard-won talent within these organizations, which are hugely capable people, enormous amounts of experience. They want to retain that because you just can't get it back. But that's probably the next stage. So what we're about to enter is a, um, is a phase where all that excess capacity is resized to the new place for US oil. And that new place for US oil, it's not a million, million and a half barrels or two million barrels. It might be a fraction of that. And we're still trying to grapple with it. So my point of view is kind of backwards. And well, it depends on the oil price. No, oil price is the nerve signal. It is a signal where all these forces come to bear. It conveys its intent through the oil price to the producer. And what we understand is the producer says, at, 40, at really, frankly, $65, we're done. Uh, but we'll start back at, say, something closer to 70, which tells me we're probably not going to be above 70, 75, or see the 90s or 100s anytime soon. Because if we were to see 90 and $100, it renews an environment where every last marginal barrel in the US is profitable, which will then sustain growth above a million and a half barrels per day. We wonder, we have an analyst here in, um, uh, with the Washington Research Group at Guggenheim here in DC. She covers a lot uh, of the Iran topic and so on. Of course, Iran's a hot topic. Who's going to make space for those barrels next year? You know, it seems like, at least her view is, that you know, the odds of a deal are pretty good. Um, and so, uh, so we're going to resize this entire sector. So, and so I did want to answer the first question, uh, last question first, because I always forget the last question. But, um, uh, but what it means to me is that uh, what we're already seeing is that it's like, it's, like this, um, it's like an earthquake center. You got the core, and then you have the fringes of already, the fringe companies are already under huge stress, if not on the verge of bankruptcy, et cetera. And it's working closer to the core, and that core is shrinking. So it's the, who's in the core is, is the best rock. And I think of plays that, um, frankly, it's going to be two things. It's going to be the price of oil con conveying that, and then it's going to be the differential. So it's going to be the cost of getting that barrel to the end user that also conveys. Places like the Bakken, which has been a huge success story, is suffering a horrible differential. It's basically disincenting that marginal barrel from coming out. So it's two aspects of it. So when people say, well, it's $70 oil, you have to take 15% off the top for the cost of getting it to sales of 70. So they're not getting 70. So I think we want to be close to the end user markets, close to the refining centers. It's Eagleford and it's Permian um, primarily. And it's going to be, I think, this exciting new play in Oklahoma, Cana. Um, uh, so it's going to be the companies exposed to that. We have companies like uh, Newfield Exploration. And um, there was an acquisition this morning of one company wanting Eagleford and Permian exposure, buying another company for that reason. Mm -hmm. Great.
Okay. Russell, is the boom now a bust? I don't think so. Uh, we have clearly seen, as you put it, a number, a huge number of drilling rigs um, laid down decommission. We've seen a lot of pe uh, people laid off, uh, but we've also seen production remaining fairly steady. We have not seen a, a huge drop off in production. We're not going to grow this year. We'll probably shrink a little, but you know, we ran up to 9 million barrels a day, and we're going to sort of, we're sticky coming down. Um, and one of the reasons is, is that this is a really immature industry in the sense that it's just learning how to do this. And it's learning how to make bigger wells for less money, uh, to get more oil and gas out for less money, to drill more wells, longer wells with fewer rigs. So a lot of the shedding that's going on um, is companies just getting smarter. Uh, the era of rapid, relentless growth, I think clearly is over. Um, there's no question in my mind about that. But I also don't see any signals that that production's going to drop off. So in that sense, no, we're not going through a bust. Um, however, as Subash was saying, there are a number of companies. Wall Street was very generous uh, funding these companies. And there were a lot of management teams that went out and bought a lot of, well, I'll, I'll be generous, suboptimal rock. They just did not spend their money very well. Uh, and those companies will be bust. Uh, they will not be able to survive. Uh, so we are going to see a lot of that. I'm actually surprised we haven't seen it more already. Um, but the expectation is second half of this year, you're going to start seeing companies heading towards fire sale. Um, however, the era of the US as a major oil and gas producer, which to, in my mind is what the boom was all about, that's not going away anytime soon. Okay, thanks. Now, Terry, I know you have strong opinions about OPEC, and, and the Wall Street Journal is reporting today that they are saying that the price will not get back up to $100 for a long, long time. Have they squashed the shale revolution, in your view? Absolutely not. Uh, the point that Russell just made, the most important point, is that there is oil available at every incremental increase in the price of a barrel that that is, is there and waiting for small incremental changes. I think that the other uh, point that Russell made, which is that, that uh, the U.S. right now has a fleet of oil and gas wells. While they may have very rapid early declines, the later history of these oil wells is a long period of production. This is particularly true of gas wells also. And so in a sense, then, the capital that was spent early on is betting on these long tails. And the long tails of these wells will sustain this level of production from, uh, from American wells. And uh, uh, these are unlike conventional wells, where once a conventional well declines, it really goes off the, off the books in terms of production. And these uh, tight uh, gas and tight oil wells won't show that that particular characteristic, at least not as rapidly. And uh, we've had some experience in the Appalachian Basin where some of these wells will continue for as much as 40 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, the big uh, slick water fracking experience that we've had, of course, is now only 10 to 15 years old in the United States. And we looked at the Barnett to see how these wells are doing, particularly the tails of these wells. And uh, um, right now, a lot of these wells are being refractured 
and uh, that particularly appears to turn on uh, more gas to extend the life of these wells. So they're, 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 they, they last a long time at a very low rate relative to the initial production. Mm -hmm. It's called betting the tail, and my bet is the tail will do very well. Subhash, you mentioned a little bit what's happening in the rest of the world. What's your view on whether fracking will take off any place else outside the United States, given the price and the current environment? Mm -hmm. um, they're trying. Um, I think that view that uh, there was only one Barnett mm -hmm. well, it was true, and that there was only one Barnett, and there was only one Fayetteville, there's only one Marcellus. Um, all these rocks have very distinct characteristics that I will agree we've barely begun to understand. Um, I think, and as an aside, and two things. One is uh, just on the on the prior question, um, where where I think of how our industry has changed is that we have spent 130 percent of cash flows, and that's been fully funded by Wall Street, if you just want to call it that, but by investors. Um, I think we're going to a cash flow neutral world. This is the first time since this shale revolution has occurred in the U.S. where we're going to enforce cash flow neutral growth. Now, if that's not a sign of maturity, I don't know what is, right? So in that respect, I do think uh, uh, the, the shale sector in the U.S. has changed decisively. Now, in terms of now what these companies are going to do then applies to, uh, to these other countries is they're going to put a lot more effort into understanding the rock that they have. And I think one of the problems is that this, this big data set hasn't really existed up until very, very recently. And there's so many little parameters on the rock that are, that are more visible at a, uh, at a microscopic level that you have to collect that data. Then you have to make sure that the science is good, that you have uh, the same variables in two wellbores, that they don't vary one bit, and then understand why they vary in performance. We have seen wells that are within one square mile of each other in the very same rock uh, in terms of performance, be 100% apart, right? So industry is going to spend a lot more time with the plays that they have to understand what, what, uh, why those variances exist. So before we take off internationally, I think we've taken this view here that brute force works. For instance, um, if we put X thousand, pound, X thousand gallons of water in, let's put more. If we put X thousand pounds of sand per stage, let's put more sand. If it's 10 stages, why not do 40? It's all been about brute force. And what this is going to force now is more data gathering, uh, big data gathering. And what we're going to find is that there's intervals that work a lot better, that ex actually explain the variance in two well bores almost completely. So, um, so before we make the same mistakes, I shouldn't say the mistakes, this is, all, you know, this is all part of the process. But before we go internationally and start with the brute force uh, uh, aspect of it, because frankly, I don't think they have the equipment. You don't have the equipment to put in this many gallons of water at this pump rate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think we really need to refine the science here and understand. So, um, uh, so internationally, um, there's a lot of things like, you know, what Russell was talking about, the, the incentives here existed. Um, I think before it really takes off, those incentives have to exist elsewhere. A lot of the deals I think the companies are getting to, to, um, to figure it out are just not very good. Um, you know, and, and will take too much time. So I don't think I see anything remotely paralleling what we have here anytime soon. I believe in the EIA report, Russia, when it comes to shale oil, Russia was, was bigger than we were. 
uh, was the only country bigger than we were. Uh, close to us was, I believe, Venezuela. Uh, I'm sorry, um, um, uh, the Vaco Muerte, Argentina. Uh, uh, Venezuela was, uh, was slightly below that. And, um, and uh, uh, was Algeria there as a shale? Algeria should be. Yeah. yeah, anyway, so these were you know, yeah. a few of the, of the so-called hotspots. I have not seen one single project really take off. Mm -hmm. Terry, talking a little bit about geology here in outside the United States, I know you've, you've been traveling around the world talking about Marcellus and the geology. Have you studied any of these, these shale plays outside the United States and know where things could actually develop quickly? Yes, I have. And the answer is no, I don't know of any place that will develop quickly. Let me explain a couple things by following up on, on uh, uh, Subesh right here. Subesh mentioned that two wells can be drilled parallel with one another, offset by 1,000 feet, and behave differently, 100% differently. We also know, and this is where the real science is going to come into this, each well, as you understand, is fractured in stages. What that means is if you have a lateral that's 5,000 feet, each individual stage is only a couple hundred to 300 feet. And the industry knows that, that if there are, are 15 stages in one well, only two or three or four of the stages are money stages. And so the real scientific breakthrough, I think, that will happen on a lot of this is, is drilling a well and then understanding where you put your money, what three or four stages are really critical. And that more or less gets back to the question of where are the fractures? because fractures can vary a great deal from one location to the next, even in the length of 500 foot, 5,000 foot well. Now, to answer your question, uh, Cynthia, there are a lot of parameters that, that really matter and make a big difference. For example, China early on was believed to have a fairly decent uh, resource in, in gas shales. But the Chinese gas shales are different from, let's say, the Marcellus for two reasons, one of which is the Marcellus was marine. Basically, it was deposited on the bottom of an inland sea, salt water. And the Chinese gas shales, some of them are fluvial, which means deposited on the land surface in uh, river channels or in grabens that are not yet below sea level. And both produce shale both produce organic matter in the shale, and yet these seem to make a big difference. The marine Marcellus is proven to be far better than, than some of the fluvial uh, gas shales of, of, of China. Um, we know there are other parameters in the rock. In fact, Subesh mentioned that on the microscopic scale, there are as many as a half a dozen different parameters. All of them almost have to be perfectly aligned for gas shales to work. And if you have one, for example, the Polish, gas shales appear to have too much water in the, uh, in the matrix to allow the kind of gas production that they really like. And so that's, that's been a bit of a disappointment. We have a suspicion that uh, maybe the shale under the Paris Basin, which is different in age, different in depositional setting than the shales in Poland through Ukraine, and yet the French have elected to um, take a pass on the, on the Paris Basin. Then we have uh, the Midland Basin in England, where I think the 
British government under Cameron has realized that if the local people are going to participate in this, they are going to have to be rewarded in some way for their nuisance. Now that basin consists of a lot of uh, coal age rocks. Coal in the United States was deposited somewhere on the order of 250 million years ago. Younger than the Marcellus, um, older let's say than the Paris Basin and they have a just a completely different set of set of parameters and all of these things need to be sorted out. It is true however that the biggest gas shales that really seem to work in the United States are these large basin marine gas shales and this includes the uh, uh, Barnett, the Fayetteville, the Marcellus for example, a little bit younger in age is the Eagleford in the, in the Haynesville, each one of those are marine shales and they seem to have the best set of characteristics for all of this. Mm -hmm. The Baca Morta is one, it's a marine shale that sort of comes as close to mimicking some of the properties that really work in the United States. Russell, we started talking about not just the geology right. of the other countries but some of the environmental and, and other issues. Can you expound on sure, that. Sure, absolutely critically, and I just wanted to just real quickly follow up on something that, uh, that Terry said about the Paris, uh, the Paris Basin, and we don't really know because we haven't drilled that many wells into these places. I mean, one of the things that, that when I first learned really struck me is just the number of wells that have been drilled in the United States is an order of magnitude different than wells drilled elsewhere. And so we start talking about shales in Poland and France. They're just, the only way you can determine whether the shales will produce oil and gas is to drill wells into them and drill a number of wells and take samples. That just hasn't been done outside of the United States and it will take time to drill those wells, to take core samples, to, to collect data. Um, but you know, once again, getting back to this, uh, getting back to the environmental question, uh, China was said to have a large um, gas shale uh, deposits. Um, the problem was is that one of their good deposits was in a very arid region to the north. The other one was in a part of the country which had a population density similar to New Jersey. Neither place made, a, is really from a, didn't make a lot of sense to drill. Uh, on the one hand, you're trying to drill in a place that's dry and you need lots of water, uh, you know, lots of liquids to, to, to frack the well, and there's a lot of competing demands for that water. And then you go to a place, um, like I believe it was Szechuan, where they, which has the population density, and it was very difficult to drill there. We, we didn't get uh, all the details that you would have in the United States, but there were a number of protests um, over, as, as trucks came in, as rigs, as, as things were set up, uh, there were a lot of local protests essentially saying, you know, what, what is going on here? What's the impact gonna be? And how are we gonna be compensated for this? Um, and, and that essentially slowed the Chinese uh, growth of, of shale, even though arguably uh, China would be an extraordinary beneficiary of more domestically produced gas. They're importing it right now in enormous numbers and it's, it's, no, um, it's no secret that they've got large environmental and pollution problems and would love to supplant some of their coal production with, with gas. So these are, these are issues that we just simply haven't um, resolved. Uh, the, the shale that seems to be uh, moving the quickest internationally, we've mentioned a couple times, is the Vaca Muerta in Argentina. That's in just 
happens to sort of be lucky is that it's in a fairly remote area where there has been a history of mining um, and uh, there's sufficient water there. So once again, you've, you happen to have found a place with the right conditions, uh, the, the beneficial conditions for going forward. Those just are, are few and far between. And you know, I'm going to come back to this issue that uh, what really made shale take off in the United States was the fact that you had companies and landmen going across Pennsylvania and Texas uh, handing out large checks. $10,000, $25,000 an acre to, to, to lease the land. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to get an eighth of the royalties on any oil and gas that comes afterwards. Uh, companies had to do that because the individuals own the mineral rights. Uh, there are just, I, I, I don't believe there are any other countries, uh, or, or if there are, it's escaping me, that have private ownership of mineral rights. So what, is the, so what does the state do? There hasn't been a good answer for that yet. Mm -hmm. Now, your book does a great job at talking about both the positives and the negatives of fracking. Assuming that you know, another country decides to move forward with fracking beyond Argentina, mm -hmm. what are some of the lessons learned that you can pass on to them based on the experience here in the United States? Well, I think there have been several. Uh, first, first of all, one of the problems we've had in the United States is that we'll start drilling uh, for, for oil and gas in an area, and then all of a sudden there'll be disputes about, well, how has this impacted the quality of water? How has it impacted the quality of air? Well, it, one of the lessons learned, and they're doing this to an extent in Pennsylvania, is measure the quality of water before you start drilling. Measure the quality of air. That way, you know exactly what the impact has been. And as a bonus, you develop a fairly large environmental database about the quality of water and air in the countryside, which is not a bad thing to have. Uh, so better data, better understanding is, is, is uh, first and foremost. Um, another thing that I think uh, was certainly a lesson that the federal government learned um, uh, out of the Deepwater Horizon is that it is very difficult to have one government agency that's both promoting the development of the resource and attempting to regulate it as well. And one of the things the federal government did after uh, offshore after the Deepwater Horizon was split that into two uh, 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 groups. Uh, we haven't seen the states do that very well, but certainly if it takes if, if shale development takes place elsewhere, that would be something I would look for. Have one one government body charged with you know leasing and getting interest and getting Exxon and other companies to come in and another one charged with protecting the, the quality of water. Uh, and, and the final point I would make is well construction. Sounds very boring, well integrity, it's critically important. Uh, make sure that if you're going to be drilling wells 5,000 feet deep that you're building the wells well uh, and that they are going to survive for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and you're sure of that right up front uh, because that's how uh, you know, we, we talk about fracking and the problems associated with fracking. Most are associated with well integrity. If you can build a well right, if you can get the cementing and, and the steel right, uh, you're not going to have those problems. Terry, I, I know that you wrote very recently something about the missteps in Pennsylvania and uh, in response to uh, some international uh, bans on fracking in Romania, France, and, and other places. What are those missteps following up on uh, what Russell Russell, uh, Russell is, is mentioned a couple of them in uh, order of importance, I think. One of the great failures in Pennsylvania was to understand, and the industry understood how important it was to measure the quality of water in individual wells. Um, they misunderstood that that baseline chemistry had to be established in every well. 
And so if they did it in one well in 10, uh, that proved not to be good enough because in Pennsylvania, for example, there are no standards for water wells. And it is well known that 40% of all private water wells in Pennsylvania would not pass EPA standards. And it's very easy for the public to identify a well that they have problems with and immediately blame it on industry, regardless of whether that actually happened. So as Russell's mentioned, water well standards. Uh, the second, of course, in importance was well construction. And just to, to amplify a little bit further, the early wells that were drilled in Pennsylvania by more than one company were wells in which a production string was passed down through several thousand feet of upper Devonian rock without being cemented. At the time that industry first came to Pennsylvania, industry did not realize the extent to which this three to 4,000 foot interval of Upper Devonian section was gas charged in itself. Not gas from the Marcellus necessarily, but, but other uh, gas from other layers. And that came into this open well bore, went up several thousand feet and right into, into groundwater. So those are the two, two most important. Other issues, one of which was um, industry made, I think, a, a, a fundamental error in a, a law that was passed known as the Halliburton loophole in which uh, the additives that were put into frac fluid were held in secret. And of course, anytime you keep a secret, why that creates a public distrust. And uh, that was remedied very rapidly by a website called Frac Focus. Um, then there was the disposal of water and what to do with it. And very early on in Pennsylvania, uh, a lot of water was dumped down um, wells and we have known as geologists for the better part of a half a century that you put a certain amount of water down a well, that will cause local earthquakes. That was discovered in the Rocky Mountain Arsenal in 1960, and yet it's an error that has been repeated again. And incidentally, it's going on in Oklahoma right now, and that is not a consequence of fracking. That's really the production of oil with a very, very large water cut where the water has to be disposed of. And it's being disposed of in massive amounts. And we know that's, that's going to cause earthquakes. Another uh, issue, when industry arrived, industry arrived from uh, places like West Texas where there were very few people living and, and uh, you didn't have to do such things as build holding tanks very well for flowback fluids. Arriving in Pennsylvania, suddenly you really had to manage these fluids well. The first holding tanks were nothing more than open pits in the ground lined with plastic, which tended to leak. Now industry is going to completely self-contained systems. To, uh, to prevent this from going on. Another industry habit that created a lot of problems early on is that industry would air drill. By air drilling the initial thousand feet, air drilling through the water table, that air under high pressure is designed to push cuttings back up the borehole where they can be recovered. But that air pressure was pushing against open holes and which the air pressure was leaking into the surrounding rock that had groundwater and that pushed a front of methane in front of it towards people's water wells. It pushed turbidity 
um, turbid water towards people's water wells, and this created a number of uh, issues. If you're the owner of a private well that's been reasonably clean for years and suddenly it becomes turbid and suddenly it starts to bubble with methane, you're going to raise cane. So that's the list of the six mistakes the industry made, all of which I think have been mitigated to a, a reasonable extent right now. But those were the six that, of course, caused an international mm -hmm. uproar, and it's going to take industry a long time to down, down, downlive that. Subhash, you want to add any lessons learned for the industry and the investors out there in other countries? Yeah, I, I thought it was very comprehensive because uh, some of the problems that Terry said that were, uh, were highlighted in, in various media forms was before these learnings. Um, what other countries have a huge benefit right now of is a very fine degree of best practice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and as a, from well construction of water, disposal, water procurement, um, to mitigating truck traffic if and when possible, and, uh, and, and how to dispose of water wells and avoid earthquakes by doing a seismic program ahead of time, making sure you're not near any local faults and things like that. There's so much. I mean, we have learned so much. And where some of the problems are being highlighted right now are probably more in the transportation of the product than is actually in the physical production of the product, mm -hmm. just because we've come such a long way. Mm -hmm. I think any other country has, uh, will be a huge beneficiary of those learnings. Before I open it up to the floor here, just because this is the Atlantic Council, we're going to talk geopolitical for one second. Um, there's, well, there was a lot of talk when the Ukrainian crisis happened about potentially taking gas from the Bakken, liquefying it, and sending it via LNG, exporting throughout the United States. There have been lots of bills very recently about crude and LNG exports. Um, is that really feasible um, or not? What do you think? Well, there's absolutely no reason, technically, you couldn't do that. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a large trader in the, around the world, what's called liquefied natural gas, where you take natural gas, you cool it down to what's it, 160 degrees below uh, zero Fahrenheit, put it on a ship, take it elsewhere. That happens all the time. I think the, the, the issue that, would, that came up uh, around the Ukrainian crisis was one of timing. That was a crisis that was, needed a short-term solution. Um, and LNG and exporting gas is long-term. It's going to take years to put that infrastructure into place. Uh, but if that's the direction the U.S. policy wants to go, there's absolutely no reason why the U.S. couldn't be a large exporter of gas. Um, the other hiccup, I suppose, with that thinking is that the U.S. energy system isn't government-controlled. The federal government may have had every reason in the world to want to bring gas to the Ukraine at that point, but it doesn't have a history of telling the Exxons and, and BPs and Shells and Chevrons of the world where to direct their gas. We, we let the market do that. So there are a couple of big changes that would be required to get to that point. Anybody else want to? Yeah, I was that? just going to add that um, when I think about some of the hurdles that oil has now, given what oil prices are, um, uh, well, one of the hurdles is we're not the low-cost producer. Um, in shale gas, we kind of are. You know, we're, we're definitely at the low end of the spectrum. Uh, the other thing is in oil, we can export. <laughs> and in shale gas, we can, right? So, so my pendulum has swung back. Um, and the third thing is that uh, gas companies have adjusted their capacity to this lower uh, gas price world. The oil 
uh, producers are about to uh, undergo a very traumatic uh, um, probably few years in, in adjusting to it. So I kind of feel pretty good about the U.S. gas producer. The other thing is that, and it's a longer term view, but where I think the, uh, the LNG game is going to change, also uh, just a complete historical shift, is, um, is its link to the oil price. Um, as there are more ships on the water, I think you'll see a delinking from, from crude. And it'll be a market all into itself. And it'll be a far more, uh, it'll be a far more, uh, um, I don't know, far more competitive situation, I think, when you don't have an oil price link. Even if oil was to go back, we don't have an oil price link, link providing an umbrella for these projects. And then it's going to be the best project wins. So that is a shift that we're likely to see. Because I know if I'm an end user, one of, say, you know, half dozen countries, you know, um, uh, companies can't do this, uh, but countries can. They can, they can collude. And they can definitely say, well, you know what, we're not going to take that price. And then we'll see which, which of the best projects win. And I think the U.S. is very well uh, situated for, uh, for the uh, LNG. And yet, um, I'm reminded that, that gas coming out of the Middle East, a lot of that gas is associated gas, which means that it's produced as a byproduct of producing oil, which means that it's produced at no cost. And of course, the American gas shale producers still have a cost. And in principle, then, even if we were to liquefy this natural gas, we might be competing against a market where people could continually undercut whatever it is that, that, that we tend to uh, want to sell overseas. This is true of the Canadians, who are also trying to liquefy um, natural gas. They're going to have to be competing against gas coming out of the Middle East that can, can invariably undercut Canadian gas. Mm -hmm. Throw it open to the floor for questions. Do you, somebody have a mic? Back here. And please uh, good introduce afternoon. yourself. Uh, Pardon me? Uh, please introduce yourself. I'm you're... Bill Holland. I'm a reporter with SNL Energy. Um, I've actually interviewed two of the three up there. Um, and uh, before I question, first I ought to share this story. I was at the first Appalachian Shale Conference in winter in Pittsburgh in 2008 when Dr. Andel Gelder got up and said, they've changed my estimates of the size. We've gone from 15 to 500 TCF. The 500's held up, but I watched all these people leak out of the room when they heard that number and get on their telephones. Um, <laughs> So that brings me to my first question, Dr. Engelder. We've got three plays up there now in Appalachia that are stacked, Utica, Upper Devonian, and the Marcellus. Do you have a number for how the total of all three of them, what the potential gas is there? Well, you know, um, I'm like a better who hit the jackpot once, and the smart better who hit the jackpot once will not try again. <laughs> uh, ha having said that, let me remind you, Bill, that, that the Appalachian Basin is the most amazing place in the world because from bottom to top, we have the Utica, the Marcellus, the Geneseo, the Rhine Street, and then, of course, the Dunkirk-Huron, which was the original gas play in the Appalachian Basin, big sandy field. So I like to think in terms of this being a stack of six. Okay. And uh, you can let your imagination run wild in terms of what this will do. There have been some very good Geneseo Burkett wells. I think you were counting that as the third level. But uh, at the same time, I know the Rhine Street has been tested in the western part of the state. And there are some people that are happy with the outcome. But 
Let me remind you that when Shubesh first called me up, um, we were looking at the five original range wells and the IP coming out of those five wells went anywhere from, I think it was 1.4 million cubic feet a day. The high one was 4.7 or something like that. At that point in time, four million cubic feet a day was judged as a great well. And of course, right now, four million is a failure. So that, that uh, um, I think that each one of those layers that I've named have come up to that 2008 standard. But today, we have the Utica range, I think, holds the record right now in the Utica at a flow rate of 59 million 59. cubic feet a day equivalent. And, uh, uh, and 54 on the Marcellus. And, and it, it, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big number. And so um, let me just say that I'm content with 500 trillion cubic feet. This is technically recoverable. This has nothing to do with, with, uh, with today's prices. I might add that recently the University of Texas has run a study too, and they, they, they basically have stated we come up with about the same number for the Marcellus, 500 trillion cubic feet of technically recoverable gas. There's a bunch there, and I don't think we have to worry about running out of the stuff in the next five or 10 years. You know, as they said of the Stone Age, the Stone Age didn't come to an end because we ran out of stones. <laughs> A uh, follow-up question, if I could, of, for Subash. Subash, two years ago, the gas producers went through their own price crash, and uh, they spent a year recovering, and now they're producing more than ever. Uh, is there a chance the oil guys end up doing the same thing, or is that just too completely different a commodity operating in a different market? It's a different commodity. Um, it's a different physics. I think the oil, uh, the gas, uh, there's gas producers. I believe Devin has done this. Devon has not had a rig running for a couple of years now, maybe even a few years. Their Barnett shale production is pretty flat. Impossible for an oil well, right? Physically impossible. And they do it. Um, well, they did it through things like compression and pressure maintenance. And now refracts, you can probably get in there. Refracts, for instance, Devon's not even certain they can do refracts. Uh, they did refracts vertically. They're not sure they can do refracts horizontally. So when I think about oil wells, which uh, you, you can't do pressure, you don't add compressors to, to a pipeline to, to allow oil into it, right? So you got to do a lot of artificial lift work. This stuff's expensive. Um, and, uh, uh, and then the refract potential in the, in the oil place, I, I don't think it's going to work. I just don't think it's going to work. So, um, so the other aspect of it is in terms of capital, the gas producer basically took a dollar and he said, you know what, I'm going to spend 70 cents of it in oil or 80 cents, but I'm going to put another 20 cents back in gas, but I'm just not going to tell you, right? Um, what we're looking at now is that you don't have capital for the gas producer, you don't have it for the oil producer. There's nowhere left to turn. So I, um, so, and it goes back to the original point, what is the shape of the U.S. supply curve? Uh, you know, uh, right now, second and third quarters are probably going to be troughs for U.S. Gas, for U.S. oil supply. And in the fourth quarter, we'll see. What we see in 2016 is your base decline rate just mathematically does decline. So it should take less money to maintain your volumes, if not grow it slightly. The biggest change, though, is my ability to outspend my cash flow. That's a much bigger shift. 
And if I can't spend 130, 150% of my cash flow, then I can't deliver the growth I've had. So what I think we're going to see in the best rock is a single digit growth rate within cash flows. Uh, in, in 2016. So you can describe that how you will, you know, is that a victory or not? It's certainly a lot different than what you've experienced for the last five years. Thanks. A question right here. Hi, Nick Snow with Oil and Gas Journal. Thanks for having this. I find it interesting that nobody has said much about transportation, and you've got a former director <laughs> of FEMSA as your moderator. Now, I happen to know because somebody at the Federal Railway Administration told me a couple of summers ago that it's actually FEMSA, FEMSA that's going to be responsible for writing the, was responsible for writing the final regulations that DOT issued last week for rail. And I wonder if any of you would be willing to address the implications of transportation as they affect U.S. access to global markets, particularly for crude oil. Thank you for your question. That was on my list, but we were mm -hmm. running out of time, so. <laughs> About to help you. <laughs> um, well, I can take a crack at it. Uh, crude by rail has been a subject near and dear to my heart, which I've written quite a, a lot about over the last 12 months. Um, you just made the point, you're right, the new regulations have come out recently uh, requiring a whole new set of tanker cars uh, phase out of existing tanker cars over the next, was it five, seven years or so? Um, and then this introduction of these new type of brakes. The industry has said they're going to fight that. We don't know where it ends up. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to impact right now export uh, levels, uh, primarily because really what, what crew by rail right now is driving is it's feeding the East Coast refiners. These are refineries that have existed on Nigerian and Angolan crude for a long time. Um, so I think from what I've seen and from what I expect to happen over the next few months, I think this is a really important open question. Uh, and just to step back so everyone sort of understands what we're talking about here, the Bakken uh, shale in North Dakota went from something about 100,000 barrels a day production in 2008 to right now it's about 1.2, 1.1, somewhere in there. Tenfold increase. We didn't build pipelines to accommodate all that. We figured out you can put it on train cars. And now we're moving an incredible um, amount of a volume of crude we never had before in train cars. Well, actually we did before, but it was in the 19th century. So this is sort of the modern uh, equivalent of that. And we're put them on older tank cars, these DOT 111s, uh, which clearly have shown to be not up to snuff because we've had a number of train car derailments uh, involving both the, the older train cars and even some newer generation train cars at 30 miles an hour and what results are giant fireballs um, as this crude is very gassy and has, is, is very flammable. Uh, and the question has come up is, okay, we've had these accidents in places like Castleton, North Dakota. Uh, last week there was one in Heimdall, North Dakota. Thank goodness 27 people lived in the, in the town. It was not, uh, but these train cars are also going through Chicago and Philadelphia and Albany and some very large population centers. So what the government's really trying is the question it seems to me they're asking is, how do we make this safer uh, if we're going to be moving crude. And I think that's an open question right now. Uh, but you have extraordinary 
extraordinarily powerful entities involved. The rail industries uh, enjoying uh, lots of revenue from this. The oil industry needs this to keep going in order for the Bakken to keep going and in order, you know, they don't want to lose 700, 800,000 barrels a day of production. Uh, so there's just, uh, you know, keep an eye on this space. There's an incredible uh, regulatory clash going on right now here in Washington. And as a reporter, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's incredibly fun to watch and report on. It's so nice to hear you have to answer that question and not me. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to add, talking to producers, uh, they're going to shift back to pipe. And, uh, and uh, they're already making that change uh, on available pipe space, but they're going to commit to new pipelines. Um, and uh, and if, it, if the, the global model is correct, that we are single digit rate of growth, uh, overall, the pipeline capacity would be more than enough, I think, to satisfy future production growth out of the basin. I think some of the, sub, uh, some of the tier two rock out there is not going to produce anymore anyway, right? So you're really not going to have that explosive uh, Bakken growth rate to handle. Um, it's the East Coast refineries and the West Coast. So what goes to West Coast, they're going to have to, you know, definitely move product via rail. But everything else, anything Cushing bound and Gulf Coast bound, will be increasingly piped. Okay. I have a question here. Take the mic, please. Uh, rail costs to our neighborhoods. You know what we'll do? We'll shut you down. Congress is going to shut you down. I'm not kidding. Because you got an awful lot of pissed off people, you know. If their neighborhoods blow up, they're not happy. Now the other question is a technical question, and could you tell me what refract means? Yes, um, as you are aware, when oil and gas are produced from gas shale, the gas shale itself is very impermeable, and what makes production possible are hydraulic fractures in the gas shale and it's impossible to fill the entire reservoir volume with hydraulic fractures at one time. And so a refrac is basically a second stimulation of the reservoir with the hope that that second stimulation will put fractures in new volumes of rock that weren't accessible with the first fracture. No, it's not. The well, the well has to be temporarily shut down. Why? While the while the rock is broken again. Okay. Over here. Thank you, Patricia Shuker for a pipeline oil and gas in Dubai. Um, the White House just gave a conditional approval for Shell to drill oil and gas in the Arctic, and you emphasized on the lesson learned. And my question is, how can the lesson learned be applied in the Arctic if the drilling starts? Is that for me? Any of you. Well, I'll, t I'll take a crack at it. The, uh, it. We've had tremendous experience in the, uh, in the Arctic to begin with. And ANWR basically has about the same geology as the geology to the, to the west. Um, I think maybe the first lesson to learn here is that maintenance of the Alaska pipeline is going to be incredibly important. And the, the Alaska pipeline is aging. And uh, British Petroleum, for example, got into trouble because they didn't sufficiently maintain that pipeline. That won't happen if this new uh, uh, area of the Arctic is open. I think that we've learned a lot about managing uh, fluids that are produced with, uh, with the oil. And that would be, uh, uh, how does one dispose of them? And incidentally, that's a non-trivial problem in a distant place like Alaska. And I don't know what the answer is, but I can 
imagine that these wells, if, there, if this area is ever opened up, um, one of the first questions that the regulators will have is, how are you going to manage the waste, uh, waste waters? And uh, I don't have an answer for that. The, um, there, are, there are a number of other issues, uh, uh, including, for example, uh, protecting the uh, upper, for, upper part of the, the wells uh, with better uh, casing and, and cement jobs. These are all lessons that are coming out of, out of gas shales. I'm sure there are others, too, but uh, I, I am not prepared to address those. Great, thank you. Right here. Swami Iyer of the Cato Institute. Uh, question one, is it possible to convert the entire US truck fleet and for that matter the railway system to be using compressed natural gas instead of oil, instead of diesel? I mean, given how low the prices of gas are and it seems that you can keep producing more at these prices, once you do that, you make a huge difference to the entire demand for oil, not just in the US but in the whole world. So. I mean, is this a potential game changer? Uh, the second question I have, you know, you, you mentioned two problems of water. One was, you said in arid areas, there's not enough water, as so the problem is not. Then you say the problem is, how do I dispose of the excess water? Now, you know, there are two very different kinds of problems which I think you need to explain. As I understand, one is for the initial cracking, the other is some ancient seawater blows back and you have to dispose of it. I heard of a technique of people saying, instead of initially injecting water, we can inject natural gas liquids. That will frack it, and that will then come back, right? So then there's no question of, I mean, you're almost recycling the same thing again and again and again. So the environmental need for large quantities of fresh water disappears. Is that feasible? Well, all right, uh, you've asked two or three questions. Let me remind you that there is a man, an investor named T. Boone Pickens, who was a very smart geologist to begin with until he got into the business of uh, equities. He attempted, he attempted something called the Pickens Plan. And you may recall that the Pickens Plan was to build a lot of wind infrastructure. And he put a lot of money into West Texas wind farms. And what he was doing was uh, then hoping that, that natural gas could be used uh, not for manufacturing electricity, but for compressed natural gas vehicles. So it's, it, it really is technically possible. And in fact, in Pennsylvania, one of the early hopes was that, that there would be a series of compressed natural gas stations built along the turnpike along I-80 for um, just this, this particular purpose. Uh, um, so it, yes, it's, it, it is technically uh, possible. Now let me address the second question, which was why don't you use compressed natural gas to fracture wells? And I can think of two reasons why that's not very practical. One of which is I would not want to be around a drill rig when you were running very explosive materials at very high pressure down a well bore. I mean, that, that's just incredibly dangerous. The beauty of using water is it doesn't blow up uh, when it's under, under high pressure before it gets put down the well. The second reason for not doing that is that the fracture stimulation itself is only as good as the transfer of energy from the surface to the rock itself. And using natural gas, for example, to fracture wells 
means that you spend a lot of energy compressing a very compressible fluid that will then expand uh, on its own accord down the borehole without transferring that energy into the rock itself. So it's a much less efficient way of breaking the rock apart. And in this business where every fracture really matters, the more fractures you create, the better off you are. And water allows this to happen because water is very incompressible. In other words, all the energy that you put in water in these surface Halliburton pump trucks is then transferred to breaking the rock apart at depth. And I would add just two things. Uh, one is on the, the, uh, the use of, um, uh, of gases. Um, it's happened in Canada, and, um, and, it's, and it's had some application. It's had some success in Canada. Uh, but in the U.S., the, the, the study so far suggests not only that it's, it's not working, but there's no intermediate-term uh, view that it will work. And it, and it could, I just don't remember the technical issues, but it could be the nature of the rock and the depth. And, and as Terry was saying, um, we just have a longer way to go to deliver that energy. The other thing on, um, you know, I did study quite in depth on, on CNG and, and LNG, actually, with the in-vehicles. Um, uh, what would really change things is, uh, is the consumer uh, adoption of CNG vehicles. Because we have a lot of things like sanitation trucks that, that are incremental, almost 100% of them are, are running on CNG, et cetera. There's a lot of commercial vehicles running on CNG. Why? Because when I'm refilling, I need to know I'm coming back at the same time every time. I can't be stuck out there running out of natural gas. Um, but when we look at that in the Pickens plant, et cetera, uh, one of the things you needed to do was retrofit existing uh, uh, gas stations with, with uh, CNG tanks. Well, it costs, I forget the number, it doesn't sound like much, like $50,000, doesn't sound like much, but that was gonna come from the government. And I don't think anything's coming from the government for, for that sort of thing, right? So, um, so it, I think it just died its own death, but really the main reason why I suspect is because the combustion engine, right, that same old thing is just getting better and better and you don't need tax credits, you don't need tax handouts, you don't have to pay $4,000 extra for the same miles per gallon, et cetera. Um, competitively, it, it's falling behind. So maybe the, the real test of it, uh, of, uh, of, of it will be a battery engine but I just don't see the, uh, the, the natural gas vehicle being a, a competitive threat in the future to gasoline. Mike here. Thank you. Uh, this is David Kreutzer from the Heritage Foundation. I, I want to thank you. This has been a very interesting panel. Oh, in the, uh, and right. I was wondering if you could go back to the, the, the Cameron government, which one of their main planks was to, to go after their, uh, their shale gas. And whether they can do it, whether we'll be able to, our, our, our service companies will be able to get business there. Is it the right kind of rock? Whatever, whatever it is you think might be interesting, I think that's a, a big issue. Um, I can't, I, I don't know whether it's the right kind of rock. Um, I can tell you that there has been significant uh, anti-frac backlash there. Um, and, but you're right that the Cameron government has been very enthusiastic about this, has been pushing this, and just got another five years. So um, I would certainly keep an eye on that. Uh, but you know, they're gonna run into, I think, the same problems that everywhere else is, which is how do you, in order to accommodate, I suppose, the, uh, the anti-frac sentiment, how do you incentivize the local communities uh, to, to open their doors to this? Uh, and I just, I haven't seen any um, suggestions that, that really get you there. So I think, I, think it's, I think it's really a financial, it's an incentive game at this point. Um, and then, I mean, do you know, is the rock supposedly good well, the, in the Midland uh, Basin? The major problem that's found in the Midland Basin, which is the area from Birmingham 
and Manchester going east is that that rock is very heavily folded. It's a much more complex rock than the Marcellus. And uh, also, this is the problem, one of the primary problems in China. Um, the density of the fault networks is, is made very clear because obviously they had a couple of earthquakes, for example, that were set off. There were small earthquakes set off by fracking, but they had to, had to deal with them. And uh, it's not entirely clear to me that, that, that this gas shale in England can be made economical profitable given the complexity of the faulting in, in that area of, of England. Thanks. Right here. Sabine Bovescu is my name. I'm from Romania and I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, I would like to ask a question for the whole panel, but for Mr. Engelberg, if possible. Uh, it was a huge enthusiasm uh, in the very beginning, a few years ago, uh, regarding the shell gas to a certain strip coming from Poland, Ukraine, Romania. There were started some works there, and uh, unfortunately, they were stopped. From your perspective, it's a matter of the, I don't know, profitability of the resources that uh, are inside, or it's a matter of conjunction of the market, or could be influence some geopolitical issues in this regard. What was this in? Well, in, in, yeah, in, in that, uh, I, I'll answer the first part, and then I'm going to pass this off to my colleagues. Um, I've spent some time in a number of those countries, and, and the gas shale that we're talking about in Poland runs from Poland uh, through Ukraine, actually shows up in Turkey. It's a Silurian gas shale that's sourced in an in a, in a, uh, organic fossil called a graptolite. And if there's an analogy in America, it probably is the Utica um, the gas shale. And uh, it, it turns out that, that the major issue is the quality of the rock, and um, it doesn't really matter what the politics are or what, how the local people feel. If the quality of the rock is not there um, to make this work the way that it has with marine shales like the Marcellus, then the rest of it doesn't matter. Now, there's, I, I'm sure there's some politics going on and in, in other things as well that make it tough. But uh, the rock quality itself is, is, is disappointing. I'm, I'm not an expert on, on Eastern Europe um, uh, politics, but I mean, your, your point's absolutely right. The political discussion really comes secondary to the rock. If, if the rock's no good, uh, or if there's, there has been discovered a way to make that rock work, then the rest is a moot point. This is one of the things that is amazing about the anti-fracking revolution, which is that, that Russell made this point earlier. Without testing the gas shale um, to know whether it's worthwhile or not, uh, it seems to me uh, a little bit nearsighted for a government just to say, no, we're not going to look at all. The French, for example, really have a wonderful opportunity at least to test in the Paris Basin. The British ran into this situation in Balkum, which is south of London, where a company, Quadrilla, I believe mm -hmm. was the name of the company, was going to run, drill a well. It was a vertical well just to test the rock. They weren't even going to fracture that rock. They were just going to drill the well to see what was there. And that got shut down. And uh, so that it's very difficult for the government to know what the path forward is without knowing what's there. And that, that's, that's the first step. 
Well, I think we've come to the end of our session here today. I want to thank very much our esteemed panelists who've come from Texas and Pennsylvania and New York to come here and talk to us today and, and to you folks for being engaged and asking great questions. Uh, we hope to, to come back and talk sometime about uh, liquefied natural gas and the effective prices on that as well as uh, discussing uh, offshore, some of the global offshore planned projects and how oil prices are affecting those in the future. Thank you very much.